Don't reveal my name when you get to the border. Don't you speak my name when you walk upon the sea near the banks of the river where the waters call the faithful. Just forget you know my name, 'cause they will not let me. Pity me, young and foolish, with the pride of old Elijah. I've a taste for the liquor that will set my spirit free. All the lovers I have taken keep me running after midnight. My name ever changing, so they cannot follow me. I worked in bars. To guide me, I could let them see the ace, make it vanish in the air. Some say devil, some say magic. My cards of life would fool them, full of lies, twists and fortune, and the stranger wild and free. Darkest night, dealing trouble to the edge of the table.
welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Fairport Convention. Don't reveal my name from their latest album, Shuffle and Go. I've got a huge privilege today to welcome Dave Pegg, ever-present Fairport Convention bassist, and we're here to talk about, as well, their forthcoming autumn tour. Welcome, Dave. Hiya, Jason, and uh, thanks for for having me on the show it's uh, it's exciting to be going out on the road so <laughs> excellent you must be chomping at the bix i know that, that you've done at least one video event type thing but to actually tour and do a range of shows in front of a range of people must must be exciting after a period of time away it is yeah it's been well 18 months over 18 months since we last toured but on, on august the 5th we were um, lucky to get the chance to play in, in Cropredy at, at, uh, at the Brazenose Arms, which is one of the two pubs in the mm. village in their garden. Um, our festival that's usually held every second weekend in August was, was postponed for the second year running, you know, due to COVID stuff. Um, but we thought in order to kind of keep the... <laughs> do something to reference Cropredy Festival because we'd, so we'd already sold 10,000 tickets um, by the beginning of July when we had to call it off because there wasn't time to prepare you know, the site and everything because there wasn't enough information coming from the government about what would happen if if there was another scare and, and the festivals had to be cancelled, you know, we couldn't, there was an insurance aspect that was too risky for us to put on. We didn't, we didn't want to spend ticket payers money basically um, on something that might not happen. Otherwise we'd have had to go bankrupt. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so we thought let's play in the pub garden and, uh, and Nev Ball who does the live shoot at Cropredy when we have our festival, you know, we have two big screens Neville uh, volunteered his services along with his crew and Gareth Williams who's a CEO at Cropredy who does most of the the work, the paperwork, especially putting the thing together, fixed it up for us to play in the pub garden. So we restricted ticket sales to 250 people and and they turned up in the pouring rain. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and we filmed it and then we put it out on YouTube um, as a free show uh, with like a tip jar. And, you know, it's been watched by probably 25,000 people by now. And people have been very generous. So, you know, I'm I'm still able to eat here in Brittany. I can, I can <laughs> still buy a baguette every day for a euro for a while. So thanks for that. Anybody who did chip in. <laughs> Is the range of material you played then representative of, of your forthcoming live tour or will you um, mix it up even again? Well, at the moment, it's kind of more or less representative of what we'll be doing because our last album, the, the track you just played mm. uh, from the Shuffle and Go album, we only got to tour it for about three weeks and mm. we we enjoyed playing them. It was all new material on it for us, you know, and we, we just got to the end of the tour and you know had really got a grip on on playing all that stuff live when covid happened so we're desperate to go out and play the same the same songs from the new album again along with you know some fairport favorites which which people always expect 
to hear. I mean, we did put some some things in which which they weren't expecting to hear. Things like Sloth, mm. which is from an album Full House, which was the first album I played in, on in 1970. Yeah, so there's always a bit of old material as well. But but we're really keen to to kind of play the new stuff which we we haven't got to the point where we bored playing it it was it was still novel for us to do it you know <laughs> and shuffle and go it's a great album and i guess um making albums with fairpot given that you know such prestigious history there's always a bit of an expectation or a level to meet there and uh, shuffle and go again has such a an interesting range of material a mix of original tracks but then some really interesting covers and jolly springtime which is a relatively recent james taylor track works exceedingly well in the fair park canon oh absolutely well we're all huge james taylor fans and i've had the pleasure of meeting james a couple of times and He'd put pressure on him to employ me to play bass with him, but his his bass player is much better than I am, and he's got more hair as well, and he lives in America. So my chances of, of ever achieving that are pretty slim. But we've covered the James Taylor song before, The Frozen Man, we did some, some years back. And James actually thought we did a great version of that. But when I heard the Jolly Springtime, I thought, this is right up our street. It's it's like it could have been written for Fairport. It's got it's got every possibility of of us to do a good version of it, and and also because we do go out in the spring and do a tour, you know that we thought this is this is going to be instant. It's going to be a great song to do on the spring tour, and um, I don't know if James has heard our version of it, but but I really love that, and uh, you know. Next spring we'll be doing it again, hopefully, but it's a bit out of context to do it in in, uh, in October. <laughs> <laughs> it still sounds good, even um, what must be almost 18 months on. How, how do you, um, you record now in Fairport? Is it kind of like what some people do, a remote, or do you all get together as a band and, and record that way? We did actually all get together as a band, uh, which we do most of the time when we're recording. There's, there's only, I think, one occasion when we all did our bits kind of separately mm. and left it to our wonderful engineer, John Gale, to put it all together. I mean, technology nowadays is way beyond the kind of possibilities for me to ever get a grasp of. Um, <laughs> but so, but the younger members of the band seem to do quite well with it. But, but when you were saying, you know, after making so many albums, it's quite a scary thing to actually consider putting a new album out um, when you've got a history like Fairport. So we, we always approach it with kind of trepidation. But one of the things that's made it a lot easier is, is the development of Chris Leslie's ability to write yeah. really good songs. He's, Chris has come on in, in leaps and bounds since he's been in the band. And um, it's great having a, a great songwriter in the band again, you know, because we've, we've been lucky in the past with people like, well, Sandy and... and mm -hmm. Richard Thompson and Dave Swarbrick. Um, and we've been lucky enough to have lots of mates who are great songwriters as well, who come up with material for us. People like Ralph McTell um, and Julie Matthews. And recently, Rob Beatty, um, who's another fine bass player who plays in, in an Eagle, Eagles cover band. And Rob 
has come up with several songs that we've recorded and uh, which work really well for Fairport. But the way we go about making making the albums is we're lucky because Woodworm Studio, which was a studio I set up in, in Barford St. Michael, when I was lucky enough to join Jethro Tull in, in 1980 and suddenly was solvent. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks to the generosity of Ian Anderson and Martin Barr. And I had enough kind of um, funds to, to convert the Methodist Chapel in Barford St. Michael into a studio in order to record stuff that I wanted to do, notably the Fairport and Fairport's friends of ours and people that we thought were really good people like Steve Ashley and Anna Ryder. Beryl Marriott and Simon Nichol did a couple of solo albums there. It was just great to have a studio. And luckily, the studio is owned nowadays by a guy who's very sympathetic to the Fairport cause and lets us record there. And he's totally modernized it. It's just brilliant. It's like state of the art. And Stuart, who runs the studio, it's like, it's like, been back in the old days, you know, and we, we're very happy and settled in there. And um, we play all the stuff. We, we sit sit around, play the songs that we consider that we're going to do on the album, um, get rough arrangements. And then if anything needs replacing on those arrangements, we do do it indiv- individually. And it's a very easy process for us. And because we've played with each other for for so many years, it, it's kind of intuitive what our approach to to doing the tracks are. We're we're just really benefited by the fact that John Gale, our engineer, has got such good ears and and comes up with great suggestions as well in terms of sometimes helping with arrangements and certainly sounds and stuff. And then when we've done all our bits, we we literally leave it to John to mix it all because um, he's much better than we are at doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so that's how it works, you know. And, and Shuffle and Go, I'm, I, not just because it's our most recent album, but I really love it. Mm-hmm. I, I think all the material on it is great. And it's got this kind of vibe on it, which was instant. And, you know, we didn't even have to think of, about a track order. Literally, the track order was the order that the songs and tunes were recorded in. Wow. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's it's very unusual. That it, it it was just a joyous album to, to do, and 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 the actual title track, you know, coming up with Chris Leslie's idea of the cover was really good with the Morris dancer dressed in the Teddy Boys outfit mm. and, uh, you know, the pram with the baby in and and, uh, and Mick Tool, who does all our wonderful artwork, came up with that great sleeve. So just just a great album, in you know, which is why we still want to play that stuff when we go out. <laughs> oh, the jolly springtime, oh, the jolly springtime. all in the merry month of May. Oh, the heavenly hours, oh, the come again day. The jolly springtime, all in the merry month of May. Oh, the heavenly hours, oh, the come again day. Let the day grow long, let the river run high. That tomorrow may live, so must yesterday die. Let the resin rise up in the tree, make the green leaf bud. The bird and the bee and the fish in the sea 
feeling it in my blood. Oh, the jolly springtime, oh, the jolly springtime, and the merry month of May. Oh, the heavenly hours. Oh, the come again day. Yes, the winter was bitter and long, so the spring will be sweet. Come along with the rhythm and the song. Watch creation repeat. Thin, thin, the moment is thin. Ever so now than now. Everybody say you got to live in the day. Ain't nobody know how. Oh, the jolly springtime. Oh, the jolly springtime. All in the merry month of May. Oh, the heavenly hours. Oh, the come again day. Jolly springtime, all in the merry month of May. Oh, the heavenly hours, oh, the come again day. Oh, the jolly springtime, all in the merry month of May. Oh, the heavenly hours, oh, the come again day. There's so much uh, great material on that album. I want to finish on what. For me, possibly it's my favourite song, but it's hard to choose a favourite. What I want to do now is take you back, <laughs> take you back to the mid-60s and the Birmingham music scene, because All right, okay. I don't think I can really do your time in the 60s justice, really, given the, the range of bands and material that you played on. But um, the exceptions, the Eagle Flies on Friday is uh, hopefully representative of, of some of your work in that time. And... It seems incredible that Robert Plant had a very small role on that track. <laughs> well, he had quite a big role in, in helping The Exception, which was a little trio with Roger Hill on guitar, myself on bass, and a chap called Bugsy, Alan Eastwood, whose nickname was Bugsy, who, who was the lead singer and drummer and played the vibes as well. Um, Robert kind of helped us get a recording deal um, and a publishing deal, and... Uh, when we went down to record it in London, he needed a lift to London on the particular day we were booked in the studio. So he got in our van and off we went. And then when we got to the studio, it was in the days where you had like three hours to do both sides kind of thing. And we thought it would really benefit with a tambourine and, and Planty said, oh, I'll play it. So um, we, we managed to have Robert Plant on, on, on our first single. <laughs> that that was the band's claim to fame. The band didn't last very long, but it was a great little kind of blues original material and blues trio, very much influenced by by Cream, who we were, we were all fans of. Roger Hill, in fact, went on to play with Fairport for a while uh, later on. You know, I played with Roger in the in the group The Uglies. Uh, which Steve Gibbons was the lead singer. It was Steve. I went for an audition with this group, The Uglies, as a lead guitarist, but failed because Roger Hill was there and he was much better than me mm. as a lead guitarist. So Steve Gibbons, the singer, said, oh, our bass player's leaving, uh, Dave. If you fancy playing the bass, you're very welcome to join the band. So um, I said, I don't play the bass and I don't have one. And he said, well, he's selling his, which... He did. He sold me his 1962 Fender Precision bass for eighty pounds, and I, I just wish I'd still got it <laughs> now because um, I used it when I joined Jethro Tull as well, and I managed to get Leo Fender, who designed all those Fender instruments, when I went to Los Angeles with with Jethro Tull, and I went to visit Leo at his 
music man factory where he changed his fender he'd, he'd sold the rights to um to cbs and and set up his own company music man but he, he engraved my bass the headstock put leo fender on it which was fantastic but i wish i'd still got it but i had to part with it when i got divorced Bugsy <laughs> uh. was a fantastic songwriter and a great singer and a, yeah. a great drummer you know it was um those days in Birmingham, there were just so many great musicians. Uh, you know, you had to kind of leave Brum to, to get on in the music business, really, to, to get in the name band, which is why none of the bands that I was in in Birmingham kind of, apart from the Uglies, lasted, you know, quite a while. I had another band with Clem Clemson and Cozy Powell called The Beast. <laughs> we, only, we only did one gig. And then, uh, you know, we did one gig. Apparently, it was up in Leeds because Nigel Schofield, who was, who is the co-author of um, a book that I wrote a couple of years ago with Nigel's help called Off the Peg, um, says he saw the Beast playing at uh, Leeds University. I, I don't remember that at all. But it was our one gig, and Clem went off to join Coliseum, and Cozy went off to join the Jeff Beck group, and I went off to join Fairport. After failing many auditions hmm. for people like Spooky Tooth, Ainsley Dunbar's Retaliation, The Foundations, um, you know, I was kind of unemployable, but th thanks to, you know, some some middle-class folk loving <laughs> <laughs> folk rock musicians from london they, they employed me and the help of of dave swarbrick who was mm. in fairport at the time and knew of me from my work with the ian campbell folk group uh, another band based in birmingham you know with a baseball bat. Cause I'll be gone The eater flies on Friday I won't be back no more, no Spreading my wings and leaving I just can't take no more Take no more And I've got to fly 
So next we have the Ian Campbell folk group, as you previously mentioned, and this time the Circle Game from uh, that album from 1968. But you'd prior to that you'd done a little bit of session work, so this this wasn't your first time working with the group. No, I did. Um, I, I played like electric bass on on the Circle Game album. That was that was a real honour because it was the other musicians. It was done in London, you know, at a, a big studio. In fact, the engineer was Gus Dudgeon, oh. famous record producer who went on to produce, amongst others, Elton John. And Gus was a fantastic engineer, you know, kind of my age at the time. I was only about uh, 19 or 20. And the other guys who played on it were all kind of London session men. The, the drummer was Ronnie Verrill, who was a fantastic drummer. And I, I was really honoured to do it, and I got away with it. It, it gave me a lot of confidence um, to do other sessions as well. And when I was the Campbells, then asked me to join them playing double bass. So I swapped my 1962 Fender Stratocaster for um, for a, a plywood double bass made in Czechoslovakia <laughs> and became a double bass player. But I, I was really not very good playing the double bass. I tried to play it and I could, I was good. I could play the open strings pretty good, you know, but anything above the so-called if you imagine where the seventh fret would be on the double bass, that was it. The dusty end was out of the question for me. And uh, <laughs> I never had enough strength, really, in, in uh, you know, to be able to, to get any kind of decent sound out of it. Although I was recorded on a couple of, on an album with the Campbells that Dave Swarbrick guested on as well. Yeah. And I loved it. The Campbells were a great inspiration and I learned a lot about folk music and I took up playing the mandolin when I was with the Campbells. And what really, the, the, the best benefit from being with the Campbells was I, I became a great fan of Dave Swarbrick who had left the Campbells and had started playing with Martin Carthy and I got to see Carthy and Swarbrick, the duo, which was just unbelievable. I mean, they, they were just so good. And that was what really made me want to play or certainly develop an interest in traditional music, especially the instrumental side of it. So when, when Ashley Hutchings left Fairport and Dave Swarbrick suggested me as somebody who they might want to audition, it was a, a real honour. And, and luckily enough, uh, I managed to pass the audition, despite the fact that I think Simon and, and Dave Maddox and, and Richard Thompson thought that I was going to be wearing an Aaron sweater and have a beard and, and be like a proper folky, having been with the Campbells. But in fact, it was the opposite because I'd come from the same musical background as they had, which was Playing a Day by Burt Whedon. <laughs> Seasons 
house such a pivotal album for the band and, and really a turning point and and also after what obviously was such a, a traumatic period for the group it must have been a time of transition for the, the band and, and overcoming the adversity oh absolutely well the, you know the crash must have i mean how they cope with all of that is is beyond me it was uh it was something that was never talked about really when when we were rehearsing the stuff for, for Full House and, and rehearsing stuff to go out on the road. We became kind of like a, a boy band, if you can imagine what that was like, because they'd lost Sandy. And 
I think there was there was much more camaraderie developed in in Fairport after I joined than there had been before. Whether that was because the crash had kind of pulled them together, you know, in a big way or not, I don't know. But the the main thing about it was there wasn't a lead singer, so we were rehearsing stuff. We moved into the Angel, this horrible old pub in Little Haddam in Hertfordshire, which was, it it really was a hovel. I I mentioned on stage sometimes it was a hovel and and Simon Nicolau was Crips. It wasn't that good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, it had one kind of bathroom and very little hot water and there there were all of us guys. At the time, we all had long hair and a couple of our wives, my wife Christine and and Swarbrick's wife, Begita, and Simon Nichols' wife, Roberta, and Swarbrick's daughter, and, and my daughter, Steph. So there were a lot of people living in this in this place. It, it was not easy going. But the main aspect of the rehearsals was nobody was singing any of the vocals. So it was literally two days before our first gig when straws were drawn and, and the short straw got to be the lead vocalist, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was primarily Richard and then, and then Swarb. Luckily, my my voice was kept away from from the <laughs> from the audience for many years. <laughs> yeah, but it was happy days and full house. It's still one of the sad things about the the whole COVID thing was we were going to reproduce, we were going to play the full house album in its entirety at yeah. the Cropperdy in 2020 with Chris Leslie becoming Dave Swarbrick, if you like, but, but Richard and Dave Maddox were coming over from the States, you know, to do that. And, and they would have been doing it this year, but they're both going to come back next August. So that's something I'm really looking forward to because obviously for me, it was an incredibly important life changing album to be involved in. Such a relatively short-lived but magical combination of Richard and, and Swab there. You know, on, on Walk A While, for example, where they actually collaborated uh, songwriting-wise. Yeah, well, they started writing lots of songs together. They came up with great stuff like Now Be Thankful is another yeah. lovely Thompson Swarbrick thing. But yeah, they, they they were great because, you know, they just go off to Richard's Richard's room and Swab would take his fiddle and and off they'd go. It was a very productive period for the band. You know, it was sad when when it came to an end. I mean, we we toured America. We did the Troubadour. We did that live at the Troubadour album. Instrumentally, it was it was amazing because you'd got this great combination: the fiddle and the guitar um, just playing off each other. Uh, I mean, Richard was he, he was up there with it was as good in those days as it got you know he was up there with like your jimmy pages eric's and jeff beck's um and albert lee's but with his own kind of take on it all very influential gu- guitarist i think people like mark Knopfler picked up an awful lot from richard in those days i mean mark's a fantastic guitarist as well but i'm sure that richard is one of his big influences Walk a while, walk a while, walk a while with me 
Dave, you've mentioned that live at the LA Troubadour show, and, and that's obviously been captured on, on record. Tracks like Matty Groves, you seem to have a bit more of a, an aggressive or confident sound in the period. <laughs> well, I think the aggression probably came from the bar bill from the Troubadour, <laughs> because, um, I mean, history has it's been recorded many times, the fact that our fee 
at the end of the week was was less than we'd spent at the bar. Mm. Uh, so it was a great ploy because it, it meant that Doug Weston, who owned the Troubadour, had to book us back again <laughs> in order to get his bar bill paid. It was the only way he could do it. So, but it was um, it was a very heavy week, um, and we, it was being recorded by John Wood in in Wally Hyder's mobile mobile uh, truck, which it wasn't a great time for me because I'd, I'd we'd had Led Zeppelin who were playing in town at, at the Forum, you know, the eighteen thousand mm. seat of Forum gig, and after their gig they came to the Troubadour and. Um, and got up and jammed with us, Bonzo. But I was big mates with with John. You know, we were mm. like the best best of buddies. And, and and Robert, I knew quite well from from the Birmingham scene. But they all got up. I didn't. I was a drinks monitor because John Paul Jones played my bass. He's a wonderful bass player, but I'm a better drinker. <laughs> uh, so. So my job was to keep keep the drinks coming, and it it was a wild night. But after this particular jam session, we went off to a club which was going to be open the next night, and um, we were drinking there till about five or six in the morning. Uh, John Bonham and myself, and then the police raided it. So we, we luckily we'd passed out behind some Marshall four by twelve speaker cabinets belonging to Savoy Brown who were opening the, opening the club the next night. So the police never got us, but but consequently, it was a very late night. And, and when I left the club with Bonzo, it was about 10 o'clock the following morning, and his limo driver was still outside. He'd been ordered to wait, wait, not let Bonham go anywhere, you know, until he was back in the car. So I got dropped off at the Tropicana, a very seedy motel. <laughs> and and John was supposed to go off to Hawaii that night to do a, a, a sound check for a TV show that Led Zeppelin were doing. But he called me up at about two o'clock in the afternoon and said, oh, before I go, let's go and have a drink, Peggy. So mm. off we went to Barney's Beanery and, and proceeded to have the occasional beer and the occasional um, margarita and the occasional tequila sunrise and Janice Joplin happened to pop in and her and John <laughs> proceeded to drink excessively and myself as well until Anthea Joseph came to collect us at about seven o'clock uh, to tell me that we were on in an hour at the Troubadour and could I sober up wow. so the recording certainly is very erratic Jason from the bass end aspect of it um, <laughs> and the tempos are just unbelievable the speed and stuff I think everybody was definitely on some kind of high whether it was a natural high or not I don't know <laughs> I, I may have I may have held them back with with the fact that I was somewhat over refreshed <laughs> alcoholically and um, that's all I can tell you about it but it's an enjoyable CD to listen to <laughs> I'm very, very impressed after hearing that. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm impressed that you could stand, <laughs> let alone play very well. Well, well, I know it was. It, 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 it's amazing that I got away with it. It's. Uh, it, it is quite amazing. I was very worried when I heard the thing was coming out. Ironically, we've never found any of the tapes with Led Zeppelin and, and Fairport mm. from that night. I don't know what happened to them. We're obviously very worried about it because Peter Grant's 
the Zeppelin manager had got a bit of a reputation for, for not being the most friendly mm-hmm. guy in the world, although I never personally had any problems with him. He, I, I thought he was lovely, and he, he looked after me um, on many an occasion in, in those days. But uh, it'd be nice if they did surface at mm-hmm. some point.
Mr. Full House, we have Angel Delight, and you mentioned the angel. And the lyrics of the song seem to represent that period in time for the band. Oh, absolutely. The lyrics were all written by the four of us. I think Richard, although he'd left the band at the time, may have contributed to the lyrics. The lyrics are very funny. And people are mentioned like the Mighty Glid, who was a, a, a chap called Robin G, who was our... our um, well, I say roadie now, but Robin was, was much more than a roadie. He, he, he drove us around um, and looked after us, you know, in a big way. Sadly, he passed away last year. It's, it's just a story about, about what life was like in the Angel, basically. Do you still have a, um, the couple of kippers and a glass of cider? I do have the glass of cider from time to time, and I still love kippers. I find them to be the, one of the tastiest fish dishes, <laughs> if you like. It's uh, Forget all that fancy stuff. It's like kip, yeah. kippers for me work really well, and uh, you know, and um, and living in Brittany, cider's really good here as well, and, and very inexpensive. <laughs> it seems amazing as well because obviously this was the first Fairport album without Richard but actually enjoyed huge chart success making the, the top 10 so it, it seemed to show that there was plenty of life in Fairport and, and in a future and, and, and give you confidence to continue Well it was, I mean it, it was a big blow when when Richard left but it it was understandable because he, he was writing so much stuff and, and bands can sometimes be restrictive in in terms of you know where you take the song and how you present it so nobody was we were upset that he'd left the band but everybody wished him the best of of luck and stuff you know for simon it was hard because simon now had to adopt the role of being the sole guitarist and you know following somebody like richard thompson (laughs) as a lead guitarist is, is is pretty scary but simon adapted his style um, really well, and he, he he said, right, get me a Telecaster and a Vox AC30, and uh, and I'll have a go. And it, and and he played brilliantly. In, in for the rhythm section, it was pretty good. It, it had a kind of credence, clear water revival feel, you know, with mm. with Simon doing like chunky rhythm stuff, and Swab was still out there doing all the lead lines. We we were covered musically. We we were okay, yeah. and we'd got. We got material, some of the things that Richard had, had written while he was in the band, things like The Journeyman's Grace, which we still play from time to time. So it, it was a happy album to make, and it was done at the same time as Babacom Lee, more or less. They kind of both in the same year, uh, and both all while we were living at The Angel, so that they were two albums that, that came out in the same year and you know in the six-month period that we lived at The Angel. Went out one day to view the scene from a different angle. Stood and watched a child at play, tinkling on an old triangle. Dave the drum, who was passing by, bought the toy with the coin he picked up. You should have seen the gleam in his eye as he saw it soon. His cleaned up shine up. Coming round to complain is hard 
The peacock flew to a very high tree He didn't like grass to concrete fairies But beware the action is I'd rather be with the next door there is Simon spied the bathroom door In his hands a herb shampoo Waiting for the water's floor So little time, so much to do La 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 spoken to it you know it would seem remiss of me not to mention some of the other projects that you worked on and one of the great great albums and great great artists that you've worked on is uh nick drake brighter later and one of the highlights being northern sky there how did you get involved with that was it through joe boyd joe was he managed and looked after all of those kind of singers songwriters like john and beverly martin he had and and nick he didn't have Ralph McTell, but, but Nick was kind of his prodigy. And um, because Dave Mattox and I were used to working together with Fairport, he thought it would be a good idea for, to use us on Nick's album. So Nick came to the Angel for a couple of nights and, and ran through the songs. And he brought his arranger with him, Robert Kirby, who was 
did all those wonderful string arrangements on Brighter Later. Um, it's one of my favourite albums of all time. I mean, it still stands up when you play it nowadays. Wow. It could have been recorded last week. The songs are still magnificent on it. The intricate guitar playing and the actual production and the sound, it's, it's a very emotive kind of album. It's one of my favourites and I, I'm really proud to have been asked to play on it. It's easy to say in hindsight for many people, given how Nick's legacy has just grown and grown after his uh, sad death, but um, as musicians, did you know that this was real special material? Well, not really at the time, not in my case. I mean, I, I, thought, it, I thought it was great, but I, I didn't realise at the time how important and how iconic it would it would turn out to be you know you don't when when you're young you just get on with doing stuff that needs to be done you know you don't ever imagine that kind of 50 60 years later it's still going to be relative and 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 it's still going to be out there and and young people are going to be picking up on it i i didn't realize how important an album it it was as as I didn't for for many of the things yeah. that I was involved in, but you know, um, I still play it from time to time, and it it's still it's it's just it's got this certain quality. It's almost an ethereal quality about it. You know, the the actual the sound of stuff, and it, it's so well engineered and put together. I mean, John Wood is responsible for for, for that aspect of it, really. John John really got that kind of quality that Brighter Later has and the string arrangements helped enormously as well. Joe was really good at picking people and and, and as a producer he would let people do more or less what they wanted to do. That was his that was his forte. Knowing people who might be the right person for the job, the right person to play on a particular track. He did great stuff. I mean, things with like Kate and Anna McGarrigal at the same time, that their albums were just incredible, incredible at the time.
Would you love me for my money? Or would you love me for my head? Or would you love me through the winter? Or would you love me till I'm dead? Oh, if you would, and you could come blow your next Fairport track is Rosie. I wanted to pick the live version from Fairport Live Convention. All oh, right, okay. In that period, you, you also went over to Australia. What was that like? <laughs> well, it was <laughs> it, it was fun. I mean, we, we were big fans of... Um, we, we'd actually... We went to, to Australia with the Fairport 9 lineup. We were big fans of Barry McKenzie's cartoon in, in Private Eye, you know. Mm. The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. And we, we went to Australia. We went there because Trevor Lucas, who was Sandy Denny's beau, um, Trevor who produced a lot of Sandy's records, and had joined the Fairport 9 lineup, And had got Sandy a gig in Narawahia, the first ever open-air New Zealand festival. He'd managed to wangle Sandy onto the bill. It was held in the first week in January, I think in, in 1974. It would have been 1974. And Trevor managed to swing it so that the Fairport went over as well. We got paid 500 quid. And um, on the 4th of January, I think it was, we boarded a plane at Heathrow, Dave Massex, Dave Swarbrick, myself, Trevor was already over in Australia, and off we went. It was a 39 and three quarter hour flight that stopped at about seven places. Mm-hmm. And we were in economy, of course, and uh, I've, I've told this story before. If I'm boring, you let, let me know. But, no, please. But, but Black Sabbath were on the plane as well. It was a TWA flight, mm-hmm. and um, we took off and just before the first stop, which I think was Frankfurt, Jerry Donoghue, um, our American guitarist who was with us, uh, had started chatting up the purser, this very pretty lady, a TWA hostess, uh, and he, he informed her that we were a rock band and we were going to Australia. And she said, oh, gee, there's another rock band in first class, Black Sabbath. <laughs> so, so I said, oh, well, I, I know Black Sabbath. I'm from Birmingham. Can I go and say hello? And she said, oh, no, sir, I'm sorry. You can't go into first class. You're, mm. you know, you're in, in economy. Um, so I said, well, tell Ozzy uh, and the Black Sabbath guys that Peggy uh, from Fairport Convention's in the back. And if they want to come and say hello. So anyway, after we landed at Frankfurt, the plane took off and Ozzy came and joined us. And um 
proceeded. It was in the days where you could drink and smoke excessively on planes, yeah. uh, which we did. <laughs> Ozzy actually drank a bit more or quicker than I did or couldn't quite handle it as well as I could at the time. Uh, and by the time we mm. the food arrived, Ozzy, I'm afraid, had a bit of an accident and um, <laughs> cried Ruth into his TWA plastic tray with his dinner on it and passed out which meant that um, it caused quite a commotion in in economy um, and quite a bit of a mess on the upholstery of the, of the chair and stuff. So I was moved into first class with the rest of Black Sabbath <laughs> <laughs> until we got to Hong Kong, <laughs> which which was superb, where we had to change, I think, at Hong Kong. And mm. Ozzy had passed out and spent the rest of the trip to Hong Kong in economy, whereas I was living the high life with cigars <laughs> and champagne with Bill and Tony <laughs> and geezer in first class. So that was a happy uh, memory. And then we got to Australia and we played at the Narawahia Festival. And it was the first of many trips to Australia. We used to go every year and we, and we loved playing over there. And that's how come we got to play at Sydney Opera House because right. Sandy was over there on this trip and she she you know she got up and joined us at sydney opera house john wood recorded it and it came out as with that wonderful title live convention <laughs> 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 and then sandy rejoined the band and that that's how how come uh, rising for the moon the next album happened right. because she was back on board as it were Come on, Rosie, 
seems amazing that fortunately by the late 70s and punk and all that sort of thing the steam a little bit had, had gone out of Fairport but around that period you got the call from Ian Anderson to join Tull that must have just been yeah well, well what, that's such a good thing it was well in, in in the late 70s like 78 Dave Swarbrick had got like hearing problems you know he, he was mm. playing amplified music what he wasn't happy I mean he was a great exponent of the electric violin from from coming from a folk background you know, to develop the the way that he did using things like the Echoplex and Wawar and stuff like that. He he really got into it really quickly and, and and he was a great electric violinist and improviser. But his hearing was playing up and, and, and we were Bruce Rowland had, had joined the band. We were a four piece with Simon Nickelback on board and we'd made a couple of albums for phonogram Tipler's Tales and the Bonnie Bunch of Roses and our manageress at the time, Philippa Clare, had negotiated this deal with Phonogram and it was for six albums and we'd given them these two albums which, again, were very folky and, again, in my opinion, are both really good albums and there's nothing wrong with them. It's just they weren't, at the time, the way the music business was, nobody could promote them. There wasn't a kind of folk rock scene anymore. As you say, punk was happening and we felt really out of place. And the guys at Phonogram or Vertigo, in fact, said, look, guys, you know, you're going to have to go. We don't want any more albums from you. And I said, um, well, you may not want any more albums from us, but we're giving you another four in the next month because that's what the deal is. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the guys there who was like the head of, of um, Vertigo said, uh, look, we understand that, but can I give you some money not to make any more albums for us? And we said, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so... It was the first time, literally, we'd ever made any money out of the music business. And, and it kind of affected the band because Swarb said, right, I don't have to do this anymore. I mean, we, we were paid 7,000 quid each. And Swarb thought this was the end of the world financially. And he could move to Scotland and become self-sufficient. And he bought like a small holding and he was going to, you know, kill rabbits and shoot pigeons and be self-sufficient that didn't last very long <laughs> uh, in my case i was going to set up a little studio in Cropredy to record my friends people like steve ashley who had already started recording what became his family album so the seven thousand quid i got really helped and while i was kind of setting up this little studio and working on doing that for a living I got a call from Ian Anderson from, from Jethro Tull saying, could I dep for their bass player, John Glasscock, who was, was really ill and they'd got a seven-week American tour coming up. So I went for an audition and luckily got through it um, and then had 10 days to learn two hours of Jethro Tull music. Uh, so I went to Cornwall to my good friend Ralph McTell's cottage and he'd invited Chris and our kids down for a holiday um, and while they were enjoying their holiday I was swatting up on Jethro Tull music and trying to find out where the time signatures went and where the key changes went and you know it was <laughs> it was quite a period of 
quite a busy swatting period for me that 10 days and and then I did this the seven week tour and on the last gig we heard the news that John Glasscock had passed away so which was awfully sad he he, John was a great bass player and and the guys all loved him to bits but but that's how I, I got offered the gig in Jethro Tull and I, I stayed with them for about 15 years. And working with Ian and, and Jethro Tull, there's still a folk element to it, but obviously, as you say, it's got at times more of that complex edge and, you know, working John, working Joe from A is an example where there's still some folk style roots there. Yeah, there were, not on that particular track, but mm. but the, the A album led, you know, there are other things that I later did with Jethro Tull that were very folky, in fact. And, and Ian had already done what, in my opinion, are two fantastically iconic albums, which could be called folk rock albums, Heavy Horses and Songs from the Wood. The music on those had so many elements of, of um, certainly Scottish and, and British tradition and the way that he he could write songs almost you know in the in the, the the way that richard thompson does or using traditional um elements but combined with this monster kind of rock band which jethro toll were i mean they were all such fabulous players you, you got ian's monster flute playing and martin barry was fantastic guitarist and still is you know for me it was a very exciting period it was it was like the difference between Fairport was Fairport, we were like a bunch of mates who, who happened to play music that we all enjoyed, but Jethro Tullet was like an army operation, mm. you know, with a very good kind of band leader, uh, Ian, who was such a professional, the way that he approached everything about the show, the lighting, the sound, the performance, um, you know, it was a different world for me. I learned an awful lot from him, which really helped me when I kind of, took over looking after Fairport later on.
We next have Meet on the Ledge, and I wanted to play the version off the uh, Farewell, Farewell live album, which was the uh, Spring 79 live concert, which I think was the last Fairport show. It was kind of a farewell, farewell show. But it seemed like you couldn't kill Fairport Convention. Eventually, you got Cropper D, and the fan support there just grew and grew and has continued to grow over the years. It did indeed, yeah. The Fairport audience are such a loyal lot, you know, they they are. And and the fact that Cropperty came about, that was kind of a, a lifeline for us. It, my ex-wife, Christine, and myself started putting that together because when Fairport split up, all the ex-members, we were all still great buddies and, and we thought it would be great if once a year we got together just to have a bit of a reunion bash kind of thing to see how everybody was how much hair loss they hmm. endured during the previous 12 months hmm. and that that kind of stuff so that's how that came about and um and the the residents of Cropperty were all up for it it benefited the village and the two pubs and the shop um and that's how the festival grew really and it was something that we're very proud of it, it's been the lifeline of, of Fairport ever since really and it's it's attended by 
at least three generations of, of, of audience. You know, you get people kind of older than me. <laughs> I'm 74 next month, and I know there are, there are people in their 80s who still come to Cropperdy, and then there's their kids and, and their kids, you know, and sometimes their grandkids, so their great-grandkids. So it's something we're very proud of, and I hope that continues for many, many years. We, we're certainly looking forward to 2022. You know, check my book out. It's uh, it's still available. Yeah, you do, you do have your, your own uh, autobiography out, and you've got so many stories, and you, you've actually captured uh, many of those or all of them in, in that book. I have, and it prints very small. It was written with Nigel Schofield, who's a Fairport expert. He knows more about Fairport than, than we do, to be honest. Nigel did a great job. I just related all these stories to him. And there's, there's a lot of stories in there, and the print's very small. Here's another funny story. Mm. I gave show of hands when we, we did a lovely festival, the Costa del Folk, a couple of years back and and Steve and Phil I thought I'll give them a copy of my book so I caught them in the lobby of the hotel and I gave them two copies and I'd signed them to Steve and, and to Phil and Steve opened his copy of the book up and he had a look at it and he said the print's incredibly tiny, Peggy. I have to put my glasses on to read it. Why is the print so small? And I said, well, if the print was bigger, the book would have been thicker and it wouldn't, would have cost more to put through people's letterboxes to post. And he said, or oh, shredders. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a fantastic line. And you can uh, you can get that directly from uh, davepeg.co.uk, so it's off the peg? Yeah, have a look at the uh, my website, yeah, or, or you can get it on Amazon, you know, if, if you want it delivered quicker. We used to say
I did promise at the start of the show that we'd finish with another track from Shuffle and Go and one of my favourites is Cider Rain. This is a great track and this was originally by, was it Tea Garden? Well, Tea Garden is, is a band, it's like a trio that our friend James Wood, um, James Wood is a, a guitarist and singer, well, he plays everything actually, and, mm-hmm. and a songwriter. He lives in Nantes in Brittany and we met him because we did this big show called Excalibur, the music of Alan Simon, which involved all the fairports. And it was a big production with 155 people on the road. We did about 10 gigs in Germany. It was um, This was about five or six years ago. It, it might have been even longer. Mm. Martin Barr from Jethro Tull was involved in it as well. And, and many, many famous guest singers. But James became a friend uh, and he lives in Brittany so we see quite a bit of him and, he, and his, his songs really you know some of them when we hear some of his new songs we think that would be great for Fairport and that's where we got Side of Rain from it's uh, it's one of my favourite tracks from the album it's, it's, it's just such a joy to play it's, it, it's a bit kind of you know, when you get a song and you, you have one run through at it, and it all just clicks into place. You know it's right for the band, and that's what that's what happened with that song. It's such a great songwriting there. So at the start, we mentioned that Fairport have got an, an autumn UK tour, and it's actually not that long away. So I think the first date, if I'm reading fairportconvention.com right, is the 14th of October. That's right, yeah. So uh, we're getting ready to come back to the UK and, um, you know, hope the tests all work out <laughs> and uh, and that we don't have to quarantine this time, which we did the last time we came over t- to play at the, the Cropperty Brazenose and the Wickham Festival thing. But, yeah, I mean, it'll just be great for us. We're doing a few little gigs. We're, we're doing Wells Cathedral, which will be mm. fantastic to do. That, that's going to be all the dates are up on the Fairport website, as are our, our winter tour dates. And there's a link if, if people want to have a look at the Brazenose concert from August the 5th. But it'll just be, Jason, we're just mm. really pleased, Jason, to be out there, you know, doing yeah. some little gigs and, and some bigger ones. The Welsh Cathedral one I'm really looking forward to. It's just, I've been inside that space and it, it's, it's just going to be wonderful playing in there. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, looking at the dates for the Autumn Tour, and I can see that there's a range of dates from February to June next year. But unlike many other bands, you don't just play the usual places. You know, you go to towns that, that bands don't play, you go to venues that bands don't play, you really get, go out there and, and provide a real variety of places and t- different types of venues. Yeah, well, we, we're lucky because we've got flexibility in, in terms of the sense that we don't have to have like a huge PA system every night. Um, sometimes Jerry uses his electric drum kit, which means we can get all the stuff in one van. We have a great sound man, Simon Yorith, coming out with us in October. And, you know, we can play like venues like, like the Chipping Norton Theatre, which, you know, seats like 160 people and still kind of make it pay. 
because mm. we can go to little venues that have their own PA system. We don't have to cart a load of stuff around. We've, we've got great flexibility. There is a, a great joy in, in having somebody three foot away from you. <laughs> when you sit in there, you know, you can tell, you can tell whether they're enjoying themselves or not. And it, you can tell if they've seen us before as well. You know, you, you sometimes you get people in the front row and they're, they're more scared than we are. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not that bad. We've been going for nearly 55 years. So, it, yeah. And some of the keys, some of the songs are still in D. They're the ones I like because I, I, I've mastered the key of D. Um, <laughs> you know, apart from augmented and diminished chords, which I still have trouble <laughs> with. But, you know, I'm a bass player, so... Root and fifth and fourth is I can get away with that most of the time. <laughs> I think you've been very, very humble, and I think you know that you're with many people. You're one of the best bassists. So um... <laughs> in my price range, I am Jason. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> Peggy, what what a pleasure it has been to talk to you. The stories that you've got are, are endless, and um, I, I like the way that you do you and Simon and, and the band and, and Chris weave in some of the stories in your, your shows so everybody's going to be in for many many great nights on the autumn uk tour no, i hope so yeah i hope so jason and uh, yeah thanks jason and uh, well thanks for your time and, and interest and you know see you soon i hope yeah yeah brilliant take care jason cheers mate Bye-bye. bye Got to find my boots, put my raincoat on Fetch my bucket and spade and I'll be the one Green grow the rushes, oh I'll wander down the way to the waterside There's a hole in the garden wall where the light shines in A place where the merry moans play and the flowers sing White are the lilies of shelter
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.